so good to see you all this morning. I'm not going to say Merry Christmas yet. I'm say Happy Advent to you. <laughs> but it's, it's good to be together. I'm glad we're gathering. I'll say Merry Christmas later. Um, but uh, I did want to just let those of you that are watching online today just let you know that we've had some, I know we've had some sound kind of in and out challenges today, but we hopefully have all the microphones turned up and all that stuff today. We have uh, uh, a couple, as a lot of people are traveling right now, our two sound people are both gone today, so we're <laughs> figuring all that out, but we're glad you're here. So today is, like I said, the fourth Sunday of Advent, and the way the calendar falls this year means it's also Christmas Eve, and churches deal with that in different ways, a variety of ways, and it may not surprise you, given what we've said about Advent so far this year, that we're not going to rush to Christmas this morning. We're still going to sit with Advent for a little bit longer. We'll celebrate at the end of our service today, but first, let us sit with this anticipation. We can wait just a little bit longer. Today, our readings lead us to the beauty of God's grace. We are told of the ways in which God has done and will do for us and the world what we are unable to do for ourselves. In our Old Testament reading, King David has finally settled in his new home, Israel's new capital, and he's been given, it says, rest from all of the enemies around him. And it's at that point, David is ready to find what is next for his life. Okay, we're settled. I'm here in the capital. I'm the king. What is next for me now? And we know from the story that David is a go-getter, right? He's not content with just sitting around and basking in a new city and a new authority. He's just brought the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, recentering the life of Israel on worship. And now it's time for a building campaign. <laughs> it's time to build something. So David decides he's going to build a sanctuary, a temple for the ark. And David announces his plans to Nathan the prophet. And Nathan says, yeah, gives his approval and his blessing. It seems like the obvious next step. But we're to notice in the story that neither David nor Nathan pray about the plan. Neither of them ask God his will in this situation. Eugene Peterson insightfully points out that sometimes motives appear so pure and things seem to make so much sense, we feel like we don't need to ask God. We don't need to pray. So building plans move forward quickly. But then after a night of prayer, Nathan has second thoughts about the whole thing. David's plans sound good, but they're David's plans. They're not God's plans. So God tells Nathan that if David moves forward with building him a house, that might actually get in the way of God's plans for David. Then, as Peterson says, after a night of prayer, Nathan withdraws the building permit. <laughs> David has decided, I'm going to build God a temple, but God actually reverses it in the end. It says in verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. In other words, you think you're going to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. The whole thing is this is about what God does, not about what David or anyone else will do. Now think about Israel's story for a minute. Israel also had wanted a king like the other pagan nations, right? In the same way, Israel, of course, wanted a temple so that they could be like all the other nations. Everybody has kings and everybody has temples. These are the things that kingdoms have. Kings represent proper government, administration. They keep us from anarchy. 
Temples represent presence. They show us that God is near. The problem is kings become corrupt and temples become idols. Even though God knew that a king wasn't best for Israel, God chose to still work within the structures of his people. So he gave them a king. First Saul, now David. But in the midst of these structures that God allows and God works in the midst of, he works in such a way that is different, that's revolutionary, that's counter their expectations. Even when God gives the people what they want, it's always revolutionarily different than what they can imagine. The Lord seeks not an ordinary king, but a king after his own heart. The Lord seeks not a stagnant or stationary temple that would somehow contain God, but a temple that would go out and bless the world. Both are signs which point us to God's intention for his people and for the world. The other thing interesting here is this word house. When God says, I'll build a house for you, or I'll raise up a house for you. House doesn't just mean temple. It also can mean family. You know this from like, you know, all the, what's that show? Game of Thrones kind of stuff, right? <laughs> like a house can mean a family or a, a line that, that uh, is drawn up. We're told in chapter six that David's wife, Michael, is unable to have children. So what God is saying here is just as the building of the temple is God's business, not David's, to be done by God's initiative, so the question of David's successor is God's business. So David wants to build God a house and to be a king and to build a line for God. But God says, no, I'm going to raise you up a house, a line of succession from David. It's interesting because David's immediate successors, his kids, are a mess. We're told in 2 Samuel 12, it's because of David's immorality. But that's not the end of the story. God doesn't give up on David. Why? Because it's not ultimately about David. It's about God. So the word of the Lord to David is there's one who will come and will be both the true king, the one who loves and cares, and we see even dies for his people, and the true temple. Not just a building, but a person. This is about what God does, not about what David or Nathan or anyone else will do. In fact, God is the first person subject in 23 verbs in this passage. God does the action. The Lord tells David that he will have a son whose throne will be established forever. Okay, so that's what we see from this Old Testament reading. Now, keeping that in mind, we look at our gospel reading today. The setting of the gospel is first century Galilee in the town of Nazareth. It's about 45 or 85 to 85 miles north of Jerusalem. An angel comes to the home of a young woman who is part of a marginalized people living on the edge and shadow of one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. Now, all ancient empires were brutal. They slaughtered and killed innocent people. They conquered lands. They demanded that their victims proclaim the emperor as Lord and God. And Rome promised a lot to their subjects. They were seen as benevolent in another way because even though they conquered by force and by violence, they promised peace through something called the Pax Romana. But their peace was ultimately achieved through violence. But they did lots of stuff for their people. And so they were kind of seen with this sheen of being good or benevolent for the world. One of the many people groups conquered by the Roman Empire was Israel. 
a small marginalized community that had once been great. The unique thing about Israel is they also happen to be the chosen people of the one true God. They hold on to God's promises that he is the God who lives among his people, who doesn't hide from them. This is the God who not only wants to bless them, but wants to bless the whole world through them. And this is the God who delivers people out of bondage. But here's the deal. Israel has not heard from God for centuries. He's been silent. And in the silence and in the longing, there's been seemingly a void that's been created. And there's all these different political groups within Israel that have emerged with different dreams about how God's promises will be fulfilled. Some of the political groups think it's only through violent revolution. Others think it's through purity. Some think it's just through accommodation with Rome. And then in the midst of this world, God's divine messenger comes to a young woman, a virgin named Mary. In the midst of an expansive empire, God speaks to a minority people, his people. In a land of emperors and governors, God speaks to a poor family. In a patriarchal society, God speaks to a young woman. We're told that Mary is a virgin. Mary's virginity plays an important role in the narrative arc of the story. This is not because the Bible is anti-sex or that God does not use real everyday physicality. Indeed, God works through physicality in this story and throughout the life of Jesus. But the virgin birth communicates something about the nature of grace. Just like us, ancient peoples knew where babies come from. The story of the virgin birth is not just something that they created due to a lack of scientific knowledge. But it's important to see how the doctrine of the virgin birth fits with the rest of the story of Scripture. It's not like it's out of nowhere. When we confess in the creeds that Jesus is born of a virgin, it's not just something that just pops out of nowhere. Oh, that's an idea. It's consistent with the story of God and his people, a story in which miraculous births actually play the starring role. So think about the story of Abraham and Sarah, Genesis 12 through 17, a couple who cannot conceive, yet they are chosen by God and told they will have a great family. Even the story of Moses, though it's not, his conception is not a miracle, his infancy is marked by this miraculous escape from danger. One of Israel's judges, Samson, was another miraculous birth. And then after the age of the judges comes the age of the prophets and kings, which begins with Hannah, a woman who grieves because she cannot bear children. And in answer to her prayer, Hannah becomes miraculously pregnant. Her son Samuel becomes the prophet who will anoint the first kings of Israel. This is the story of the Old Testament. Ben Myers writes, at the great turning points of history, we find a woman pregnant and an infant child brought into the world by the powerful promise of God. Israel's story is a story of miraculous births. And even on a larger scale, this is true. Later, the people of Israel were taken from the promised land and led away into Babylonian captivity. And in the darkest hour of their history, the prophet Isaiah compared the coming deliverance with a miraculous pregnancy. That's in Isaiah 54. Every child born to the people of God is a reminder of the promise. Every male child was marked with the sign of that promise, circumcision. 
It's no surprise then that Israel's Messiah, the one who would come to redeem his people, would enter the world by means of a miraculous pregnancy. The virgin birth communicates that the incarnation is an act of God, not an act of human beings. We didn't do anything to make God come into our world. Jesus is God's word made flesh. And I know this is tough to receive, but we do just that. The doctrine of the virgin birth itself is something we're invited to receive rather than to fully grasp. And it takes humility to believe in something like this. As the angel greets Mary, the greeting is particularly difficult to translate in the original language. The angel says something like, Hail, gifted lady. God is not responding here to Mary's virtuousness. It's all God's choosing. Still, it is a proclamation that so the Holy Spirit is already at work with Mary. She is highly favored in some Certainly, she would be afraid of the unknown, of course. But on level, Mary knows that the presence of an angel in the story is not always good news in the Bible. Sometimes it's bad news. So the angel says, do not be afraid. Even this command is an act of grace. I think about the times of our life where fear just drives us. There's so much in our world now where we are driven by fear. So many of the choices that we make are driven by either fear of scarcity, not having enough, or, or fear of what might happen, or our country being taken over, or whatever it is. So many decisions that we make are based on fear. And the act of grace, the word of grace is, don't be afraid. You don't have to be. You don't have to fear the coming of the Lord, the angel says to Mary. There's something here in the nature of grace that God always chooses in weakness, not in strength. Now, right before this, if you know the story, God had spoken to a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was the priest in the temple who offered the yearly sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. So he was considered pretty high status in the religious world. Yet, Zechariah becomes the foil of the story. Mary believes God, Zechariah struggles. And God ultimately achieves his purposes through Zechariah by shutting him up. Like David, Zechariah can't achieve something for God. God is doing something through him and for him. Zechariah is culturally and socially visible. Mary, being a young virgin, was hidden. She lived in seclusion. Zechariah demands proof of God's promises by asking, how shall I know? But by contrast, Mary accepts the angel's word. Gabriel tells Mary that the child to be born to her will be the Messiah, the king of the house of David. So God has indeed raised up a house for David, and it is more than David himself could have possibly imagined. The angel gives twofold explanation for this event. The Holy Spirit will come upon Mary, though through this she will be enabled to do more than she could ever do on her own. And secondly, the Most High will overshadow her. God will surround her with his power. Now, ancient cultures were full of pagan incarnation stories. Typically, what happened is a god would step into the human world motivated by the god's selfishness. So the god needs something or wants something from the people. And the stories, at best, they rumor what's happening here in this story, but they fall way short of its goodness and their conception of the goodness of God. 
And we even have those stories today. We have secular versions of this story. So think about the Superman myth that we have in our world. From above, a heavenly father sends his only son to save the earth. When he comes down to earth, he'll be raised by two parents who originally had the names Mary and Joseph. That's the Superman story we're talking about. Think about Batman, by contrast, is not an alien. Superman's an alien. Batman is not. He's just a dude with a lot of money and technology and cool gadgets. And Batman's whole thing in the stories is his own hurt and vulnerability, his own humanity. Yet at one point in the 2017 Justice League film, Batman says that Superman is more human than I am. Batman says Superman lived in this world. He fell in love. He says the world needs Superman and the team needs Clark. Here we see a hint of the longing for incarnation. Someone other than us who is also fully one of us. Batman admits his incapacity, his weakness, his need of the one who is other than human and also more human than I am. Now, of course, the Superman myth is incomplete. <laughs> Superman is not human. He's not the creator of the world. He wasn't sent to earth out of this kind of self-sacrificial love, though it rumors that. The Christian story is the better story. Our God has never been foreign or other. Our world, or our God has never been, or, or we have never been foreign or other to God. Not only did God create our world, human beings are made in God's image. It's not a foreign God who did a good job pretending to be human, nor a human God who achieved divinity through good works. Our God is both other than and intimately connected with our world. So when God steps into our world, it is God taking the image that he has created but has been severely broken and rehumaning us, making us humans as we were created to be. Unlike the pagan incarnation myths, God's initiative is never selfish. It's always an act of love. As Mary wrestles with this event, she's given a direction. She's told where she can look for confirmation. Her relative Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, is also pregnant even in her old age. In all the birth narratives in Luke and Matthew, if you notice, as you read the Christmas story or you hear it told in the next few days, notice that the witnesses are always told to look for confirmation. They're not asked to trust the experience by itself. Zachariah is told by the angel, but will confirm it when his wife is pregnant. The shepherds see angels, but they're told to look for a baby in a manger with swaddling clothes. These are specific, tangible places to look for confirmation of the angel's words. We're reminded that encounters with God, spiritual experiences, can be more deeply rooted by witness and in a greater story with the people of God. Witnesses, story, community are so critical as signs of God's activity in our lives. They're not just necessary. They're often the primary way that God speaks to us is in the community. We need each other. We need the stories of the community, the people around us, the ways in which God has brought others through and has shown God's self faithful. By the end of Luke chapter two, we see God has already formed a community around the birth of Jesus. 
a community of witnesses. We're not yet, that's not yet called the church. We don't see that until after Pentecost happens, but it's kind of like a pre-church. It's this community that's gathered around the person of Jesus. A priest in high position who's struck dumb when he refuses to believe that God will give him a son to prepare the way of the Lord. His wife, Elizabeth, who's filled with the spirit, who carries the child, who in his entire life will point to Jesus. That's John the Baptist. A young woman who is given favor by God, hears the words of God's grace and bravely chooses to follow. An adoptive father through whom Jesus is given the lineage of David. Unlikely shepherds who hear the angel's proclamation to the world and respond. Matthew then later tells us of magi, pagan astrologers who come from the east, following a star, seeking the king to be born. And then later we see two prophets, Simeon and Anna, who await the new king and prophesy what he will mean to the world. Many witnesses, one story of God's grace. As Mary wrestles with doubt and questioning in the moment, she's not left alone. She's part of a people. In closing, Mary knows better than we do that God is present with us in vulnerability. I think this is often challenging for us to accept. We're not prepared to receive because we are so often focused on our own strengths, the places where we have power and can show power, the places where we can prove ourselves. In this way, we're often like David, ready to build something for God or for ourselves. Yet it's only through surrender, through acknowledging God as the giver, sustainer, and rescuer that we participate in God's work and receive all that God has for us. So the question today is, where is your point of vulnerability in this season of Christmas? Where's the place where you're experiencing some weakness or doubt or lack? If you're experiencing weakness in your life, it, this is not a promise that all of a sudden we're going to pray or have the right posture of humility and everything's going to be perfect. It's not a promise for a check in the mail for your lack, that your sickness will be instantly healed. Of course, that may happen. We pray for that to happen. We trust that it can and sometimes does happen. When we experience those kind of immediate drastic reversals, we give thanks because we've experienced a glimpse of God's future world here and now. But our gospel reading doesn't tell us that this young girl all of a sudden overthrows the Roman Empire or that the manger becomes an earthly palace. No, it proclaims a new kind of kingdom where God is present in the lowly manger with shepherds as witnesses. We're taught to pay attention to the unlikely places in our lives and in the world. Our world is groaning. All of us are aware of the places where it seems that God is silent and where those who seem to claim to speak for God have given in to worldly power. That was Mary's world, and that's our world. In such a world, we look for God present among the weak and the vulnerable. Mary's decision to receive all that God has for her comes from somewhere. It comes from the core of who she is, her trust in God. May we be formed in such a way that our calling is to respond to God's coming into the world the way that Mary responded.
I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. 